From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. His home was spared by the Marshall Fire, but his restaurant, the Rotary in Louisville, was not. It opened just two weeks before it was engulfed by flames. There was not much peace of mind on what's going to happen with the house, what's going to happen with the business, and the business even more so because as we left, the flames were within 30, 40 feet. Today, the hopes to rebuild and an expression of gratitude. Then, as King Super's employees vote on a new contract, what's the possible impact on grocers in other parts of Colorado? And what could that mean for the long-term relationship between management and labor? Later, concerns that using high test scores to choose a school could lead to racial segregation. Plus, Colorado's Teacher of the Year gets national notice. I cannot donate as much now as I could when I was working, but I still feel it's important to give what I can. I gave because I've lived in Colorado for five years now, and I've listened to CPR almost every single day, and I felt like it was time for me to finally step up and support all the wonderful programming. I value and trust this public resource. I have two children, and I want it to continue well into their future. Whatever your reason for giving, thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Rotary Restaurant in Louisville had been open just two weeks when it was destroyed in the Marshall Fire, and yet co-owner Scott Boyd feels gratitude. Boyd didn't lose his home or his business vision. He spoke with my colleague, Ryan Warner. Scott, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. Take us back to the day of the fire. I understand you were in the restaurant as the flames crept up on the shopping plaza where the Rotary was located. Uh, Describe what that was like. So I think, I mean, it was a little deceiving because we thought, yeah, there's smoke and there's a ton of wind and it would make sense to shut down because I didn't think anyone was coming in, but we weren't in a huge rush. We didn't think there was any imminent danger. So we were just, you know, shutting down for the day. This was about 1230 then we're probably halfway through the process of shutting the restaurant down. And then I looked out the front doors and right across the parking lot there, there was a bunch of bushes and shrubs and trees just on fire. So at that point, it was like, oh, okay, this is a little different scenario. So we were like, okay, let's just get out of here. We left the rest of the food out. You know, we left money in the drawer and just locked up, took off out the side door And then there's this um, kind of a detention pond area with a bunch of grass in between our building and McCaslin, which is uh, probably the biggest road in Louisville. And that was just completely on fire. So it actually turned into a, a relatively scary scenario. We all got out of there and then sort of went our separate ways to our homes and evacuating from Louisville in general. The details that you sprinkled in there, money left in the drawers, food left out, it makes me think that in the days since the fire, you've thought perhaps a lot about what what was in place, what was where in the restaurant as it burned. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because if you look at the building from the outside, especially, it looks devastating. It looks totally destroyed. But once you step through the walls 
it is really less so. The fire sprinklers inside really did their job. So again, all the walls, ceilings burned, but inside is this really looks in, in pretty good shape. What damage at that point really happened was from the sprinklers and then there was no electricity. All the windows and doors were busted out. So then it was this freezing, thawing, burst pipes, just kind of not the result of the fire, but not direct fire damage. So yes, there's a ton of damage in there, but but a lot of it did not burn. So n- no doubt you've been back to see this in yeah. some detail. Yeah. Were there, I don't know, like metal bowls that you could salvage or... Um anything salvageable? We don't know yet what is salvageable. For sure, there's a lot of plates and silverware and utensils and glasses that will be fine. But the stuff that is really where a lot of the money is, the refrigeration, uh, the stuff for beer and wine, ovens, grills, that type of stuff, anything that has electronics or whatever, we just don't. My guess is they're shot because mm-hmm. of the smoke and the water, um, but that's something that's actually kind of a challenge to figure out if it's still working because there's no power in there, there's no water, there's no gas. So we have to move tons of equipment out of there, try and find a place that has electricity to test them. So that's sort of what oh. we're in the in the middle of now. Uh, my understanding is that you rented that space. We'll talk more about what mm-hmm. you may do yep. in the future here, but let's slow the story down. There's so much I sure, want to ask sure. you. Yeah. Your thought after evacuating the restaurant was to get home and what, help evacuate your family? And and did that yep. go smoothly? It, it did. So I got home. My wife had already been there with the rest of our family and had just right about the time I got home, just before that, they got the reverse 911. Hey, evacuate Louisville. So we actually had people visiting us from California. So it was myself, my wife, two kids, dog, cat, our friends, husband and wife, their two kids. We have a, what I guess is called a multi-generational home. So it's kind of like a duplex. My parents live there as well. Mm -hmm. And they have two dogs and a cat. So it was really this, like a pretty big caravan. You know, Scott, I'm I'm getting Noah's Ark vibes. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And then my dad's like, we got to take the chickens. And I was like, we are not taking the chickens. You know, we need to get out of here. So we had this caravan of four vehicles leaving. Looking back, it burned within, you know, a quarter of a mile of our house. At the time, we didn't really know because the smoke was so bad. The wind was so bad. You didn't know if the flames were two miles away or 200 yards away. So it was, I mean, it was scary trying to get out of there. Everyone in the entire town was getting out. So then, you know, you rush out and then you just sit in these back roads trying to get out of town for another another 45 minutes. You're thinking about escaping. You're thinking about your home. You're thinking about your business. Is there any way to keep like peace of mind in that environment? The thing at that point was that we were all together. We were safe. And it's it was a little scary that, hey, there's, you know, fires around us. But I did not personally feel like we were in serious danger at that point. We were in cars, we were driving, you know, if need be, you could go up on the sidewalk and get out of the way of flames. So, so there was that level of peace of mind of, okay, we are going to be okay as a, as a family. 
but there was not much peace of mind on, yeah, what's going to happen with the house? What's going to happen with the business? And the business even more so because as we left, the flames were within 30, 40 feet. Were the kids scared? They were. Yeah, they definitely were. My wife was a little freaked out. And it was a lot of just, hey, we're fine. I know this is scary and there's a lot of unknown, but I can tell you we are not going to be hurt by this fire as we're leaving town. Well, tell us about the Rotary. What kind of restaurant was it? And I have to say, for someone who's not connected to the restaurant, it feels weird to talk about it in the past tense because it was so recently open. I wonder I wonder if using was is a strange thing for you to hear, too. It is. And it's actually not entirely applicable because we do have a location in Denver. So yeah. we are thankfully still alive. But the Rotary is a fast casual. We We feel it kind of falls in this description of a restaurant called fine casual. Good food, healthy food made with good ingredients, really tasty. It's not fast food, but you know, you order at the counter and you sit down or for delivery or to go. So it's it's more of a fine dining quality of food in a fast casual setting. And we specialize in rotisserie meats and seasonal sides. I understand you actually were friends with like a was it a, a chef at Chez Panisse or something? So ownership of the Rotary, there's three of us. It's myself and my brother, and then our friend Don Gragg, who we've known since junior high. We all grew up in Evergreen. And in fact, Don got me my first job in a restaurant at age 15, washing dishes. Don continued. He went to work at Chez Panisse in Berkeley. He worked under Tom Colicchio at the Gramercy Tavern in New York. Oh, wow. He was a a private chef to a family that summered in the South of France. So he's kind of been all over, opened a bunch of restaurants in, in Denver in the nineties, back in the day, it was one of the opening cooks of Barolo Grill, opened up Mel's, opened up Starfish. I mean, he's a legitimate chef and tired of the fine dining grind and was like, Hey, I want to do something different, but I don't want to sacrifice taste and quality. And that was how the Rotary was born. I'd like to talk about your experience against the backdrop of COVID, which we know was so, mm -hmm. was so difficult on restaurants. As we said, the Louisville location hadn't been opened long, but I, right. I know that COVID was a factor both in your business, but also in your family life. Tell me about that. We, as a restaurant, you know, before the one in Louisville was opened, our location in Denver, we actually, we were in a food hall to begin right when COVID hit and really just we tried to weather it. Food halls were not the greatest place to be with the limiting of the amount of people that could come in. So we felt, okay, we're either going to kind of die in this environment or we have to go out on our own. So we went out, found a place. This was January of, of last year. So we dealt with all of the first wave of COVID stuff, limited people. We did to go only for a while you know, it was hard to hire people to get people in. And then kind of phase two, it's really for us has been a whole, a whole nother level, especially with uh, Omicron. So many more people are getting it. It's much harder to staff than it's been before. It felt like someone would say, oh, I was exposed and they'd take a test and they were negative. And now it's like, oh, I was exposed. I have COVID, my brother has COVID, my sister has COVID, my family has COVID, and, and it's another level. So that's been really difficult. And then 
more recently, right after the, the fire in Louisville and Superior, where the rotary up there burned down, we had a burst pipe at the location in Denver. So all of us were down there with the plumber kind of dealing with this. And I got a phone call from my wife. She's like, oh, I just tested positive for COVID. Oh, so, oh God. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I, I just, know, so. at some point you just say enough, like, yeah, uh, enough already. Give me a break. Yep. Whatever. Right. God, universe, uh, flying spaghetti monster. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think for me, honestly, when it gets to the point where it's hard to believe, you know, to the extent of the stuff that's happening, it actually makes it a little a little easier because it's kind of, it is kind of ridiculous. And it's like, okay, it's just surreal. Exactly. Exactly. It's almost farcical. So it honestly makes it, at least you can commiserate with your partners and just laugh at how absurd the whole thing is. And it does make it, it makes it a little easier to deal with. I I just want to note that you work part-time as a psychotherapist in Boulder. You're a, a, you're a meditator. Maybe we're hearing some of those skills come through as well. Okay. To the business. Are are you just like facing a mound of paperwork right now? And is that paperwork leading to reopening in Louisville? What's the plan? Yeah, absolutely. A mound of paperwork. We have, our insurance has actually been fantastic. They reached out to us before we reached out to them. And surprisingly, uh, that part of the experience has been kind of a joy. So, but yes, even with it going as smooth as you could hope for, it is, you know, it's a lot of work and it's lists of stuff that was in the restaurant. Then as far as income loss and payroll, you know, dealing with external accountants for them that are then going through P&L statements to see, okay, what do we give these guys going forward for how long? So yes, we're absolutely in the middle of that. The other slightly different scenario than the owning of a home is that we lease the building. So someone else owns the building. So we basically still have a lease there. You know, we just signed this. So it was a 10-year lease until everyone's weighed in and said, yes, this building is destroyed. And at that point, we are relieved from the lease. So we're still in the middle of that. I don't Hmm. think there's anyone that thinks that this building is salvageable, but we're still waiting for the powers to be to stamp this as a fully destroyed building. And then, yeah, we will move on from there, my hopes that it, it is in Louisville, because I think it's, you know, it's such a great community. It was really needed, uh, I believe, uh, our type of restaurant here. So that's still the plan. So it sounds like you're committed to Louisville. There are so many questions between now and when you could answer where that will be in town. Right. Yeah. I want to talk more about the gratitude you feel I wonder, mm-hmm. I wonder if some of that comes from looking around and seeing just how much others lost. Is there a, something in, in the service to your neighbors or in the comparison to what's around you that is comforting or even distracting? I don't know. Yeah, there, there absolutely is. I, I think most people would agree for me that it's absolutely just not even same order of magnitude of losing your business versus losing your home. And especially, you know, this business was, we'd signed the lease six months ago. So basically everything in there was 
we had just purchased. So there was, you know, there was blood and sweat and tears that went into building that, but it's not your home. It's not where you raised your children and, Hmm. you know, we didn't lose pets or, you know, memories. So seeing all of our, our friends that did lose homes and, you know, there was another person in the same complex as us that lost their business and lost their home. So you see things with a different perspective through a different lens. And it might be different if this was just a fire in our business and nothing else happened in in the neighborhood. You might not be able to have that perspective, but we do. We feel fortunate. You know, we have we have insurance, which is what it's for, and we'll be okay. We're able to pay our employees for 60 days while they either transition unemployment or find new jobs or if there's you know any other kind of support from FEMA etc so we you know we feel lucky that that's all that we lost well that was going to be my final question was to ask about your employees so does the insurance cover 2 months for them or is that where that's coming from yeah so they they cover 2 months of payroll for your kind of non-manager level employees which is a lot of their income comes from tips, which right. is not covered. So that's not one-to-one, but it's something. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, yeah, Scott, my understanding is that you'll let us check back in and see how you're doing along the way. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely, we have some plans um, to take what we've learned with not just opening, you know, our third iteration of this, but also everything that we've learned from COVID and from there. And we're, you know, we really, we have some cool ideas of what sort of a restaurant 2.0 would look like and would love to walk through that process with you guys. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Scott Boyd co-owns the Rotary in Louisville, which was destroyed by the Marshall Fire two weeks after opening. He plans to reopen his location there. Ryan will follow Scott over the coming months as he and his partners work to make that happen. Empty shelves, empty parking lots, and heated rhetoric were just some of the things people experienced last week when workers from Denver Area King Supers went on strike. Yesterday, workers from 77 stores approved a new three-year agreement with the grocery chain. Here to help us break down the deal and its possible statewide impact is James Walsh. He is a political science professor at the University of Colorado Denver who studies labor movements. Hey, James. Hi, it's great to be here. So according to reports, the workers will receive pay increases topping $5 an hour more for longstanding employees, better public safety measures, and improved health care and pension benefit protections. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being everything workers were hoping for, where does this deal rate? Oh, it's definitely at the top. This is a a deal that sets a new standard in the industry, and, and I believe for service workers in general. This will be something. So, what stands out to you? Is, is it wages? <clears throat> is it healthcare? What is it? Definitely wages. There is substantial wage increase that comes with it. I think security was a big issue and safety with COVID, and also with ensuring that the stores are secure and safe places for workers that they feel safe. Um, healthcare it was is always a big issue. That was part of it. I think even sick pay was a was involved in the negotiations because of COVID. People went substantial sick pay. So um, yeah, I'm not sure the workers got everything they wanted. With people, 
Right. I mean, people were coming in contact with these workers every single day. And of course, COVID <clears throat> impacted many, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I think really what, what, what happened here is we, we have um, really courageous workers who for two years have worked through very trying circumstances. We've seen them in the stores as we check out. We've we may have relationships with them and say hi to them on occasion. And and now the you know, these colleagues, these workers are saying to the public, we had your back and you have ours. And I think uh, the the resounding answer was, yes, the community was very supportive of this strike and of these workers. And that was, I think, the, the greatest factor in, in bringing the company back to the table and, and in the deal that was that was struck. I, I cut you off earlier. Did, do you think that the workers got everything they wanted? <clears throat> I'm not sure. I'm not I'm not privy to the details, but I suspect that um, I mean, the the vote was pretty overwhelmingly. Yes. For this deal so they may not have gotten everything but they 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 came awfully close i'm sure yeah as we mentioned this new deal applies to workers at about 77 denver area stores workers at colorado spring stores are expected to approve the new contract on wednesday what does this me deal mean for workers at other king supers and other grocery <clears throat> stores around colorado well i think you'll see this this um, template be applied to Safeway workers, Albertsons workers, other King Super stores. This this will definitely be a, a new standard for the industry. And I think what's important for listeners to, to think about is what's happening in a national context today in the mm -hmm. labor movement. <clears throat> um, we're seeing a resurgence of worker strength and organizing um, momentum around the country. And this this goes way beyond just um, you know UFCW and the and the King Super strike. Um, in almost every industry, we're seeing workers feel leverage and strength that they have not felt for generations. We're not quite we're not seeing that yet in terms of union density, the number of workers who are organized, but we're seeing an uptick in that for the first time in almost half a century. So this is an important so moment, and it's a moment when. Um, you know, low wage communities are are saying, um, standing up and, and organizing. And, and it's a it's, I think, a beautiful thing to see. So with the <clears throat> the workers striking and, and getting a, a new contract, uh, do you think there will be other strikes in other, you know, industries across Colorado because of what happened with uh, King Supers? Yes. Uh, you know, it's important to know that the strike has always been the greatest leverage that workers have. It's it's the only way workers can um, bring production to an end and and um, make their strength known. Their the, the fact that they're so needed. So we will see this trend continue. I'm sure. I, I can't predict where we'll see it, but I'm certain that we will. And yeah, <clears throat> um, yeah in, in, I, in many I industries. I want to go back to the, the work stoppage for, for just a bit. The workers were on strike for nine days. They were scheduled to be out for three weeks. Uh, why do you schedule a strike for a specific period of time as opposed to staying out until you get the deal you want? I mean, is this a new tactic in, in negotiations? Well, this, the strike was called on the basis of, of um, unfair labor practices for the company and, and allegation, uh, not necessarily on the basis of the contract. And so I think I it was just a tactic and a strategy that was used, um, you know, for whatever reason, the union decided it and, and it worked for um but it's certainly not a not a common strategy. 
I, I, I think back on the, the DIA custodians. Did, didn't they also set a limit on their strike? That's right. I think it was just a number of days that their limit was. Yeah. And so um, I, I suspect we'll see this strategy being used more and more. We've heard about the Major League Baseball lockout where owners are preventing players from using their facilities and signing new contracts. In the King Super Strike, was there ever a danger that workers could have been locked out and prevented from returning to work when their planned three-week strike was up? There was. Um, I think, hmm. you know, one, one of the issues that they were responding to is the fact that the company was bringing in temporary workers, contract workers, and paying them more than than the average worker, the average union yeah, eighteen dollars an hour. I hear when the That's striking right. workers were only getting sixteen. That's right, and that was a big um, source of of uh, tension with the workers. Was was so that was already be- happening. That was already being done. But I I, I suspect with the community support that the uh, King Supers recognized and saw. I mean, it was impossible to see to to ignore that the parking lots were only half full or nearly or nearly empty. That with that community support, um, something like a lockout just wasn't wasn't in the cars, wasn't going to happen this time. And I think the workers must have felt that support. <clears throat> they they saw that there weren't a lot of people coming into the stores. They a lot of people were driving up and bringing bringing food and coffee and donuts. And I think they 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 recognized that they had a lot more support perhaps than in past strikes, and that that gave them great leverage. I want to talk about those contract workers, the ones getting more money than the striking workers. <clears throat> what role has the pandemic played in those workers, you know, gig workers, essentially, who are just going in uh, and doing that type of work? Yeah. So what's happened is since the recession, the Great Recession of 2008-09, there's been, you know, many, many hundreds of thousands of jobs created in the, you know, bringing the economy back. But a huge percentage of those jobs have been um, temporary jobs, have been contract work, contingent work. And the problem with that is that these are workers that companies don't even have to recognize as employees. And so the labor movement today is struggling with how to organize contingent workers and temporary workers. They're workers too. And they and they're, they face the, the same issues, except they often... And, in many cases, in most cases, don't have benefits, um, don't have any, you know any kind of access to <clears throat> to what organized workers have. So this is a big issue in in the labor movement today: is how to organize gig workers, how to organize temporary workers, and and pay attention to the movement because that's that that I believe will be where over the next twenty years where most of the effort goes. It seems to me that gig workers are are more separated again, as opposed to union workers. I, I keep reading in, in newspaper stories and paper stories about how they felt like family, that they were striking with family. And I, I'm, I'm wondering if the gig employees may not feel that, but roughly. Absolutely. They, they, um, they're definitely on the outside. I mean, I'm sure the King Supers workers um, saw them with suspicion because they were seen as, as taking their jobs. You know, it's even a big issue in, in, in my field, where I work in higher education, the, the hiring of adjunct professors, um, they're gig workers. They are temporary contingent workers. They can be fired or let go without cause in, in any moment, without any, really any reason, and, and, and are not given office space usually or not and even invited to department meetings or 
really treated with the respect and dignity that that other um, folks in in my field are. So so you know, higher ed is not immune to this. This is something we're seeing everywhere, and it's it's a problem when you have different tiers of workers, some that are called employees and treated as such, and others who are not. So. I, you know, th- there's some great organizing happening now that even United Auto Workers, believe it or not, is organizing contingent faculty and graduate students. Columbia just had a great victory, Columbia graduate students. The university was forced to recognize them as employees. And so um, I, I, quite a large percentage of the United Auto Workers today are, are graduate students, believe it or not. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, labor, the labor movement is, sh- is shifting and changing, and yeah. it's, it's quite exciting to watch. James, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. James Walsh is a political science professor at the University of Colorado, Denver, who studies labor movements. He joined us to discuss the decision Monday by King Supers workers at about 77 Denver area stores to ratify a new three-year agreement. Colorado Matters continues after the break. We'll hear from parents who are concerned using test scores to choose a school is leading to a racial segregation. I'm Nathan Hevel. This is CPR News and KRCC. On the Southern Ute Reservation, many families don't have running water or even wells and have to drive miles to fill water tanks. A few times it didn't last for that week. Tribal nations had no say in the distribution of Colorado River water when it was divvied up a century ago. The tribes have been promised a say in the river's future. There's more demand than ever for the river's dwindling water. Will tribes get what they need? Read the story and see lots of pictures at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It's the time of year when many families have to choose a school for their children. Some argue that when families use high test scores or, quote, academic peers for their child as the main factors in choosing a school, it fuels racial segregation. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine visited with a group of parents who are advocating for a different way to look at choosing a public school. Andrew Lefkowitz grew up in Denver. He was one of a few white kids to attend Stedman Elementary, a largely black school. He calls it one of the most influential periods of his upbringing. Years later, Lefkowitz moved back to Denver to raise children. But something was odd. Or that seems like there's something going on here that doesn't feel quite right. His house is in the Park Hill Elementary School boundary, a school with only 20 percent students of color. Yet several elementary schools close by, 70 to 90 percent students of color. Park Hill Elementary is seen as a highly coveted, well-resourced school. And, you know, it's because their test scores are, are high. And their test scores are high because most of their student body is white and wealthy. Across the country, in fact, test scores correlate to whiteness and wealth. But he thought, surely white, wealthy kids aren't smarter. It didn't feel right. He started researching. He listened to journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones's podcast, The Problem We All Live With. It was about how all of the efforts to get kids of color living in poverty to perform as well as white kids don't work. But the one thing nobody tries anymore, despite evidence it works, is integration. You know, I, I heard that and was like, oh, OK. This is actually still a problem. Lefkowitz concluded that there was a problem with the way districts measure school quality, largely based on test scores. So he used Denver's choice process to enroll his two daughters into nearby Stedman Elementary. Certainly at the time we did that, by all of those same metrics, looked like a terrible school. Under-enrolled, by all measures, a quote-unquote failing school. And it's been amazing. 
It's a great place. How was your day, Maggie? It's fine. Yeah? We learned about the standard algorithm. He says his children are thriving at the school. the standard algorithm? They're making relationships with kids who aren't like them. They are finding shared humanity with kids who come from different backgrounds, whether that's racial or socioeconomic or, you know, kids living in foster care. And that feels like such a more important thing for them to get in this phase of their their development. Lefkowitz is one of a growing number of white families who believe integrated public schools are crucial to building a multiracial democracy, echoing the dissenting opinion of Justice Thurgood Marshall in the Milliken v. Bradley school segregation case in 1974. For unless our children begin to learn together, there is little hope that our people will ever learn to live together and understand each other. So often we have asked communities of color to bear the burden of desegregating our schools. This is Katie Zabak, a Jeffco parent who chose an integrated or integrating school for her children. White people can actually help to change the scenario by making sure that all of our schools offer high quality options for our students. In the summer of 2020, she, along with Lefkowitz and others, started the Denver chapter of a national organization called Integrated Schools. It raises awareness about how white parents use their privilege to access more heavily resourced schools. That not only isolates their children from learning from classmates who have different life experiences, but leaves high concentrations of students of color in under-resourced schools. Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. I'm Val, a black mom from North Carolina. And this is Redrawing the Lines, Undoing the History of Segregation. The Integrated Schools Podcast, co-hosted by Lefkowitz of Park Hill, takes parents deep into issues of integration, segregation, and how to change white or privileged parents' behavior. The organization offers parents a new framework for choosing a school. Instead of box checking, consider a school that's more reflective of the demographics of the district and consider the collective good in making school choice. For some parents, says Zabak, It feels hard, and it feels like you're stepping outside the norm. Some white parents are enrolling their children in schools where they are the minority. What are you guys doing at Fire? I'm learning songs to go sing to elders. Brandy Beck has two children who attend Valdez Elementary, about 70% Latino. She says the benefits to her children are immeasurable. It's a privilege, she says, that other cultures are willing to share their sacred celebrations and important events at school. One small example, she says, is a beautiful altar families built for the Day of the Dead celebration. They include all families. So as you can tell, it's really special. And for my kids, for my kids to have learned just one example about death in such a healthy way, you know, in a way that as a white American in this society, I've never been taught like a healthy, loving, really accepting way to handle death, right? Beck says for many white parents in majority white schools, raising money is one of the biggest values. At Valdez, connection is is the value. That's the higher value in my opinion. And that's another goal of integrated schools, changing the behavior of white parents, how they show up in their new schools. I call them the saviors, but it's a group of parents. <laughs> but that they decided, don't call themselves. They don't call themselves the saviors, but that's what I call them because 
This episode from the Integrated Schools podcast, Vicky and the Saviors, was a discussion with a mom, Vicky of Los Angeles, who identifies as Mexican, talking about what she called an attitude of white saviorism at her children's school in a gentrifying neighborhood. Why do we need to hoard the resources? So it's those same people that want to save us because we don't know any better and that want to come in with all their influences. And this is what I'm bringing, regardless of what you want or say or think or need. But I want everything for my child. Some white parents show up at a new school, decide what's wrong with it and how it should be fixed. The mantra of integrated schools is to show up, shut up and stay put. Denver parent Amy Murren recalls listening to that episode. I actually re-listened to it this summer in preparation for starting at Trevi Step because I don't... She doesn't want to be that person, that white mom at her daughter's new school, Trevista, which is 90% students of color. She's doing a lot of listening, getting to know the community, and helping when asked. She's learned through the support group Integrated Schools that white parents need to earn trust by making relationships with other parents one at a time. White parents in the group know they'll make mistakes, cultural mistakes, mistakes rooted in class differences, but they learn to apologize and move on. I can share with you my experience just from my first semester at an integrating school in my neighborhood. The Denver chapter um, of Integrated Schools is hosting forums like this one about choosing a school. Marin says if we can't come together to dialogue and learn how our children can learn together, how will we live and govern together? I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. Colorado's new Teacher of the Year has just stepped into the national spotlight. Autumn Rivera is one of four finalists for the National Teacher of the Year Award. Rivera teaches sixth grade science at Glenwood Springs Middle School. She says she enjoys teaching in a small mountain town where she helps teenagers during their formative years. I spoke with her after she was named Colorado's Teacher of the Year in November. Hi, Autumn. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So first off, congratulations. That is a big honor. Uh, you've been teaching for 17 years now, right since you got out of college, actually, I heard. How does it feel to be honored in this way after all these years of teaching, but with so many more years ahead of you? Do, do you think this win, this honor is going to affect how you teach in the future? I'm very excited to have received this huge honor, and I'm excited to see how it moves my career further. I think the people I'm going to meet these situations I'm going to experience are going to allow me to really bring it back to my classroom and really continue for the next half of my career to just grow and continue to uh, teach my students and continue to focus on science and pushing that passion. I'm just really excited for all that opportunity and being able to apply to my classroom for years to come. As we said earlier, you teach sixth grade science at Glenwood Middle School, uh, actually right down the road from me. I'm in Newcastle. Uh, today, so not too far away. Uh, anyway, you teach sixth graders. And I remember when I was in sixth grade, oh my goodness, I could not wait to get out of there. My body was changing. My voice was dropping. It was not a fun time. How do you deal with that year after year after year? Yeah, I've worked with middle school my entire 17 years, and I love it. I love being with middle school students. I love their energy. I love their quirkiness. A lot of times, we as adults don't look back on our middle school career 
as something that we fondly miss. No one says, I wish I could go back to middle school right now. It's hard lessons are happened. I learned a lot of hard lessons in middle school. And I love the chance to be able to get to know my students and sort of help them through and be that guide through adolescence and just let them know it's going to get better on the other side. And you can, it's, it might not be great now. You might have those awkward moments, but it gets better on the other side. As far as my classroom goes today, I currently have a heat lamp and a hot plate with a beaker of water. I have a plant wrapped in plastic and some water infiltrating into a funnel with rocks. And so hooking students in and letting them sort of have questions as they walk into my classroom and then going from there and taking those questions to drive our instruction. We're learning about the water cycle, but it's a great way for them to see those experiences happening firsthand. Talk a bit about when that child gets it when you when you make that that connection i think for a lot of teachers that moment that aha moment we like to call it when a child finally gets what's going on is what keeps us in the field year after year in science especially this is unknown things to them they're not really getting it or it's something they've had questions about before and never really had the words or the terminology to help them understand it and so every time a student is trying to figure out why is this behaving this way? Why are there water droplets on the outside of my can? Allowing students to have that aha moment and learn it and to be able to explain it is just such a great part of teaching because students being able to explain the world around them and to be able to understand what's going on and just love that feeling of learning something is such a great experience as a teacher. Your school in Glenwood Springs has a majority of Latinx students What does it mean for you as a Hispanic teacher to win this award? It's really hard for people to perceive where they want to go if they don't have an example of what that looks like in front of them. And so to be able to be that role model for my students, and hopefully one day I'll see one of them in this situation, it's just, it's beyond amazing. And I'm so honored to be able to be one of those representatives and one of those leaders and one of those guiders for them. And you grew up in a, a really rural place, about 30 minutes north of the Dotsero exit on I-70. Uh, it is a beautiful part of Colorado over there. Uh, you later taught for more than a decade in Colorado Springs. What brought you back to, to small town life in Colorado? Yeah, I moved from uh, where I grew up. I graduated from Eagle Valley High School and moved to Colorado Springs and went to college there at Colorado College and then taught for seven years. And Finally, the big city just started to wear on me and I missed my small mountain town and so moved back home to Glenwood and have just loved being part of this community where people, you walk in the grocery store and you see people you know, you see students, you see families going to sporting events as a community event and talking with people and cheering on students. I just love that small town community and miss that and was very grateful to come back to Glenwood Springs Middle School. But with that said, you know, there is definitely a concern for those of us living in this area about affordable housing and maybe funding for schools isn't what you would see in a bigger city. Did that impact you at all in terms of wanting to come back? Like, hey, could I afford to live in the place I want to teach and make an impact on students? Yes, Roaring Fork School District is the third most expensive district in all of Colorado to live in, and yet we are funded in the bottom third percent of average per pupil funding. And so it is really difficult to live in in our rural towns, especially our resort towns, 
Um, yet those those students and those teachers still deserve a, a, a livable wage. And, you know, the graduating class right now of 2022 has never had a fully funded educational year in all 12 years of education. And that's even, you know, before the pandemic, which threw everything in the air, didn't it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think on top of that, it's just made things worse. Teaching is really hard right now. It's, I think magically we thought this year we were out of the pandemic and things would go back to normal, but we don't even know the normal we're returning back to and things aren't normal. We're still working hard and long hours. We're still trying to keep kids safe and all of that just involves a lot more focus and paying attention of teachers. And so I just worry about the that mixed with not really being paid and not being funded as education should be funded. I just worry about the longevity of many of our teachers' careers as they just might not be able to do it or might not have the um, the desire to want to keep working so hard for not really a, a lot of money. I feel like we value a lot of things, and I love living in this great state, but we need to start really funding education where it needs to be in order to help support our teachers and therefore support our students. It's beyond clear that the pandemic has taken a toll on teachers and Putting the masked-unmasked debate to the side today, I I still would like to know, during these past few months, did you ever think about quitting, just throwing in the towel during this pandemic? (laughs) You know, I don't know a single person that didn't stop and think for a moment, what else could I do? And there were times last year where I, or the year before, and, and even this year where I've sat and thought, like, could I do something else? And I don't blame those that want to go and try something else because it is a lot of work. Um, Unfortunately or fortunately, I love it too much. I love teaching and I love being with my students. I love, you know, having them tell me random things in the morning as they're walking by and showing me the picture they drew. Um, I love hearing about just how they're changing and growing as people. And so... Until that changes, I think the teaching career is stuck with me. <laughs> and during this pandemic, you had a group of students, which you taught online, uh, that you had never met before. That is to say, you had to form a relationship uh, via computer screen and not uh, in person, which sounds difficult for especially a science teacher. So I was with them for a whole quarter. So we started online. And then from there, we went we went back in person. So for the entire quarter, I was together online. But during that time, we really developed a relationship. And I was shocked by that because I thought, here are students I've never met online. What is this going to look like? And we really developed some strong bonds to the point that one class, um, one time we were teaching and I was talking about something gross and the kids were being grossed out by it. And some student piped up and he said, it's not disgusting. It's science. And we all laughed about it. And we were joking on how that comment should be a sweatshirt. (laughs) And before we knew it, one of the student's parents um, worked for All Kids Dental. And he was like, I'll sponsor you guys. And so the whole class got sweatshirts that said, it's not disgusting, it's science. And so it was crazy. Who knew I would bond with a group of students that I never even met in person. And when we came back in person, I didn't have them anymore because of cohorting and keeping kids safe. We had to change our schedules, but it was still fun to see them. And I just ran into one of those students today and she had her sweatshirt on. And so those relationships oh, that's still great. continue. It's been a year. So yeah, it's really fun. You've been teaching since the mid-2000s, and of course, we all know that technology was so different back then, and we've seen massive changes in how students and us, of course, interact with technology, especially with remote learning. With that said, how do you keep your students' attention uh, with all of this technology coming at them during a school day? 
Um, you, you gotta, you gotta work for it for sure. I think, um, but I think it's possible and students are used to getting information. We all are used to getting information in a quicker format. I think also not always seeing technology as the, as the evil. It's actually really helpful and has really helped build connections and allow students to connect with each other. I know for myself, I still check in on my past students by sending them a text or sending them an email. I have a teacher Instagram page and a teacher TikTok page so students can follow and we can stay up to date with that. And sometimes it's hard. I'm not going to laugh or I'm not going to lie. I still don't understand Snapchat that well, (laughs) but trying to meet (laughs) the students where they are really helps just sort of bring out that interest and bring bring out better learning from them. So so you're a TikTok star to your students? You've gone viral on TikTok? Uh, I've not yet gone <laughs> viral on TikTok, but I do have a TikTok page. I definitely use it a lot in the pandemic. It was a great way to connect to my students and meet them where they were. There were definitely some times where I was like, we're talking about states of matter and the kids aren't getting it. And so I have a TikTok video on states of matter that the, I put on there and the kids would watch it. And I'm like, hi, I know you watched this. So at least you've learned something. <laughs> So I tried to take the science that I was teaching them and meet them where they were on the devices and on the like media that they're used to. So we can still have some science infiltrating wherever they're at. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations once again. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Autumn Rivera is Colorado's teacher of the year. She teaches sixth grade science at Glenwood Middle School in Uh, Glenwood Springs. She's now one of our finalists from the National Teacher of the Year Award. The winner will be announced in the spring. And by the way, the last time a Colorado teacher was a finalist for the National Award was in 1994, and the last time a teacher from our state won was in 1978. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. It's time to pick up a book and turn the page with Colorado Matters. Our latest pick is a novel, a historical mystery called All That Is Secret. A young black professor learns her father has been murdered in 1920s Denver and investigates. Author Patricia Raven joins us for a virtual discussion the evening of February 8th. You'll be able to ask her questions. Tickets are free at CPR.org slash turn the page. That's CPR.org slash turn the page. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. We love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters or send us an email, coloradomatters at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for being with us.